Good morning. As Pastor Mike said, my name is Daniel, and I'm glad to be with you this morning. I'm thankful for the opportunity and uh, look forward to our time. So I have some working assumptions this morning. Number one is that since I'm new at this, you're worried right now that I'm going to ramble on for two hours. Number two is that since I'm new at this, I'm worried that I'm going to ramble on for two hours. And as we've just read in our text, only God truly knows. So with that in mind, let's pray. God, we have gathered together this morning to worship you and to hear from you. As we've worshiped in song and then in giving, God, now help us to worship you with our attention spans. We believe that you speak through your word, and today I ask you, I need you to speak through me. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today is February 15th, and we all know what yesterday was. Yesterday was the 212th anniversary of the day Moses Coates got a patent for the apple pearer, at least according to onthisday.com. No, I'm assuming most of you today in this place know February 14th, at least in America, as Valentine's Day. Now, you couldn't really miss it because if you've been to Walgreens at any point since maybe the day after Christmas, could have been a couple days before, I don't know, I don't think I went to Walgreens a couple days before, then you saw teddy bears, you saw chocolates, I don't even know what else was there. And I'm not here this morning to decry the evils or laud the merits of Valentine's Day. Rather, I think we can accept it as a time when traditionally, in most contexts, it's a time when we share love. Friends to friends, parents to kids, spouses, on and on. And I think in the midst of this, oftentimes it's a significant other sharing something with theirs. I don't want to limit it just to spouses. It could be girlfriends, boyfriends. So significant others to, to, uh, between one another. And so in the midst of this, and in, law, and in the course of doing life, you can get to know each other quite well. So take my wife, for instance. She's sitting right over there. She probably doesn't want to be pointed out. But my wife, Meredith. So I could have gotten flowers. I could have gotten her chocolates. I could have taken her out to a nice restaurant yesterday. Well, maybe if we could afford it. But I could have taken her out to this nice restaurant yesterday. But you see, I didn't. And you might be asking yourself, that seems like a pretty poor move. Why did you not do this? And the answer is simply this, because I know my wife. I know her well. I know her very well. So instead of flowers, I know that my wife would rather have that money to more effectively budget next month. Now this may sound odd, but it's true. And then as far as the restaurant goes and eating out, I know my wife is moderately afraid of restaurants and the overcrowding, especially on a day like Valentine's Day and the wait times. She doesn't like that. But more than that, she is deathly afraid of parking and parking-related things. So parking and parking-related logistics are perhaps one of her greatest fears in this life. Yes, you heard me correctly. I don't understand it either. You could have a conversation with her about that on your own. Altogether, though, I know this about her. I know she would rather stay home, eat pizza, perhaps receive a card or a letter that was well thought out, and she would want to watch a movie on our couch. That's what my wife would want 
out of Valentine's Day. Now, did we do this last night? No, because we rescheduled Valentine's Day, but that's beside the point. And so if any of you know my wife at all, you would know that this is true. You would probably know some of these things about her. But really, the point is that my wife and I know we know each other better than anyone else on this planet is ever going to know us. No one's going to know her as well as I do, and no one's going to know me as well as I do. But this morning, we're looking at one who knows each of us better than our spouse, better than any close friend, better than our parents. Someone who knows each of us completely and fully. So with that in mind, let's turn to a consideration of the Psalms, and then we'll turn to our actual text of Psalm 139. So at the time they were written, Psalms were the songs of the church for the Jews, the people of God. This is where the prophets consistently reminded God of of his people, of what he has done for them in the past, and he calls them to faithfulness in the present. So that's the prophets. The Psalms often reflect on who God is and who we are in light of that. So who God is and who we are in relation to God. In the Old Testament, God's people receive their importance and their identity from God. This isn't always something that I think that we're so cognizant of in our, our culture, but in the Old Testament, this was the case. They received their importance and their identity, their purpose from God. He was the standard. He, he and the, his law were the standard by which they were measured and by which they measured themselves. So as later worshipers found themselves in various life circumstances, good, bad, difficult, the Psalms provided previous reflections on who God is and who humans are in light of that. By reading them, us, by reading the Psalms, we understand God better, just like these previous worshipers, and we can understand ourselves better. Our particular Psalm for today, Psalm 139, is a multi faceted psalm. And the reason I say this is because anybody you read who's writing about Psalm 139, they say all kinds of different things. This is said to be uh, a psalm of thanksgiving, of praise, of complaint, an appeal for innocence from the divine judge, one of wisdom, one of doctrine, and so on and so forth. So this psalm is multifaceted. It speaks in a lot of different ways. But for our purposes this morning, we're going we're gonna to hone in on just a couple ideas, really. And this is it. God knows all of us, each of us, inside and out, and thus he alone is worthy of our trust. Let me say that one more time. God knows all of us, everyone here today, inside and out, and thus he alone is worthy of your trust. So let's turn to the text to see how David is communicating this to God as he's praying this, as he's singing this, and to the future people of God in which we are included. So this psalm breaks down organically into four distinct groups of verses. Uh, We're going to briefly walk through each of these, and I know it's a long psalm, so don't worry. I think we'll beat the two-hour mark. Uh, We're going to briefly walk through each of these and, and pull out some highlights, and then we'll conclude with some practical takeaways. First, David alerts us to the fact that God knows everything about us. So how does he do this? We look at specifically verses 1 through 4 here, but you're just caught right off the bat by a couple of things. One is this. He uses the word know over and over again. You have it here in verse 1, and you know me. Verse 2, you know. Verse 4, you know it completely. This, before this word is on my tongue, you know it completely. So that's right there. And then if you factor in these words that are not only you know and translated that way, but then you have these. You perceive, 
you discern, you're familiar with. This is a lot of loaded language right at the beginning of pretty all-encompassing knowing. This is heavy knowledge. This is invasive knowledge. And then there's this other aspect to it. You notice immediately that there's these pronouns, I, me, you. And if you read through the psalm as we go through, you'll see that these come over again and again. I, me, you. In fact, those or variations of them occur roughly 70 times just in these 24 verses. It's about 20% of this whole psalm. So we see that there's this knowledge and then that there's this intimate uh, given exchange between David, who's the writer, and God, who's, who he's talking to. So that, I just want to point those out as we move forward. Another thing here in these first set of verses, we're really just in one through six again. In these first set of verses, uh, we've got him using some specific language with purpose. He uses the language of knowing for states of sitting and for rising, of going out and lying down. Now this is a device which indicates that God knows both that action, the rising and the coming and laying down, or the going, coming back, So he knows both of those actions, and it would also indicate that he knows everything in between. So again, this knowledge is universal. It's all-encompassing. It's everywhere. And then in verse 5, another thing that will be important for us is introduced. He says, you hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. So not only is he saying you know me, he's then saying you have laid your hand upon me. And this would indicate that God is with him, first of all, but he's protecting him and guiding him, which will be important as we move forward. So we have this knowing, we have this personal nature, we have the the protection and guiding, and then one more element is introduced here in this beginning, which is important for us to catch. In verse 6, he says, he says this, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So as a king, David might have had the tendency to reject this protection of God that we heard about in verse 5, and guidance. So he's king. He is in charge. But we see in verse 6 there that he recognizes this distance, this qualitative distance between David, the person, and God. He is, he's not, he's not like me. He's, he's too lofty for me. These, this idea of God in this way is too lofty for me. I, I can't even quite understand it. So there's this distance. And so as king of Israel, David would have been called on to arbitrate disputes. We know the famous one that Solomon, who comes after David, had to, had to do. He had to, uh, you know, he says, okay, let's cut this child in half. They have one half, they have another. If you haven't heard that, that could be pretty disturbing, I guess. Um, it ends okay. It was very wise, very wise. Look it up sometime. Um, so you've got this story, and so David might have similar disputes, and he has to be a judge. He has to arbitrate between them. Who knows what other kind of disputes there would be. And this, not, this uh, language that's used here, it's used in a way that David is saying that God is a divine judge. He's saying that he is a judge over Israel, and in this particular psalm, really a judge over him. He's making it personal. But there's this divine judge language, which again, will carry through with us as we move on. Technology plays a large role in our lives today. At least it does in mine. I know that it seems as though all these advances come and, and more and more I hear about how you can find anything on the internet. And by and large, you find that to be true. These conversations that you used to have where it's like, man, I wonder if, and you fill in the blank. And then you're like, oh yeah, I have this small computer in my pocket and I'll try and just find out if you fill in the blank. So this morning I want to do a brief 
experiment. Let's ask the all-knowing Siri what I'm thinking right now. All right? We're actually going to do this. Siri, what am I thinking right now? You were trying to decide what to ask me. I'm afraid that's not true. That's just not true. Let's try it one more time. Siri, what will I say in 14 hours and 32 minutes from now? Okay, I found this on the web for Siri. What will I say in 14 hours and 32 minutes from now? Let's see. An extensive list of things you can say to Siri. Uh, Siri stock quote. Mm, I just don't think, I don't think she's got it. Plus, I think 14 hours from now is pretty early in the morning. So I don't know if I want to be awake. We'll see. Uh, but anyway, the point is that this device, technology, now some of the brightest minds in our world are working on it, and they come up with it. But the point is, it is still just made by man. It is not all-knowing. It's not all-encompassing. It's not everywhere. It's just technology. It does some awesome things, but it doesn't do everything. And so like David, we want to hammer home from this first part that God knows all of us fully. He knows everything about us. And next, the psalmist posits that God is always with us. This is verses 7 through 12. He says that God is always with us. And in much the same way that he used language intentionally in the previous verses, David is making it clear here that God is everywhere. So not only is he all-knowing, he's everywhere. There's nowhere David can go where God is not also present. In verse 7, we see this word spirit, and then we see presence. These are closely synonymous, and they're closely synonymous with God. So God is with David. And then in verses 8 and 9, like God's knowledge, there's a universal scope to this presence. It says that it goes to the heavens, God will be there. In the depths, God is there. The wings of the dawn on the far side of the sea. The point is, God's going to be there wherever David goes. And this language, again, is reminiscent of divine judge language. It shows up some in Jeremiah. It shows up a variety of places in the Old Testament. But this idea that you really just can't, uh, you can't escape God. God knows us. This language is throughout, and it's divine judge language, which, again, this will continue to be important as we walk through this. And today in our culture, judgment often has a negative connotation. You know, it's like, oh, they're always judging me, or don't judge me. I, I'm a good person. Please don't judge me, so on and so forth. Uh, this judgment idea can be negative. But really here, David's looking at it as a positive thing. He's like an innocent defendant in a court. He's like, God, you know me. You know. You know. And he's wanting this judge to pronounce his innocence. He's wanting him to be the one that arbitrates in his life. So this emphasizes God's greatness once again, but it also emphasizes God's closeness, his goodness to David and with being with David. So then in verse 10, we see again that God is both present and active in knowing and being present always with David. But then again, he leads him. He guides him. His hand, again, leads him and guides him. So we just see these themes showing up over and over again. And then in 11 and 12, this is, I think, a good thing to point out. It might just come up in your mind, like, what does he mean when he says darkness and it's, it's as light to you? So in ancient cultures, darkness, it was kind of this, uh, it was a figurative thing in many ways. It represented a realm of uncertainty and fear. And then this light, the light that God would then be and bring, represents assurance and, and, uh, and calm and peace. So this is a play on words. It's, it's figurative, but it's also pretty concrete. 
we'll see here in the next section how this can be also concrete. So we have here that God knows us, he knows all of us, and that God is with us. And then we look here and we see how can God know David to this degree? How can he know us? How can he be present everywhere? How is darkness light to him? How can he bring this assurance in the midst of confusion? How could he bring physical light in the midst of physical darkness? David provides this. He gives an application, a proof, an illustration, if you will, of what's come before. In verses 13 to 16, David talks about how God created him. And he also implies that God has created everything. So let's see this. God creates David in verses 13 through 16 specifically. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And then he talks about in 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Uh, Your eyes saw me. I was woven together in the depths of the earth. This language is very intentional. God created David, which is a big deal. He's saying that you have the power to create. You created me and you created the world around me. So God is just as powerful as he is knowing and present. He can be knowing and present because God is all-powerful to the point that he created David. He created each of us. So David is using this to illustrate that. And often, when people today, you may resonate with this, I don't know. When people today want to illustrate God's awesome and creative power and his care and creation, particularly when it comes to humans, they turn to the human body. And they talk about this quite often. I think a lot in sermons. I don't know in all discourse does this happen, but a lot in sermons. They turn to the human body. And specifically, I've noticed that oftentimes they'll turn to a specific part of the human body. The human eye. And I've heard, I don't know, ten minute spiels on how intricate, how beautiful, how uh, greater than any machine known to man the human eye is. What all it takes for us to see, how our eyes have to work together, and on and on and on. And so while I don't want to speak poorly about the eye, the eye is amazing, I admit fully, I want to go still on the human body, but another couple inches lower, perhaps a bit simpler and maybe even more basic to talk about God's creative power and his goodness toward us. I will never forget the question posed to me in an undergraduate introduction to philosophy class. The question was this, why isn't our nose pointing the other way? Why does it point down instead of up? And that question struck me. It was a a silly question. It's one I don't even really know the origin of. But it's one that I think will stick with me probably until I die. I even find myself thinking about it sometimes. Why does your nose point down instead of up? And so I think the import of this question is really helpful, even if we don't know exactly where it came from. We see that God saw fit to give us a nose that would, one, allow us to breathe— Two, allow us to distinguish between hundreds of smells. I mean, when you think about it, the amount of smells that you can distinguish between is is quite amazing. And then three, not drown us when it rains. I mean, can you imagine a a good rainstorm and you're walking out there and you're you're having to make sure that you're not getting too much water intake on the way out? I mean, that'd be a pretty big problem if our nose was turned the other way. I just want to make that clear. It'd be a pretty big problem. So we see that God paid such attention to detail with the eye, and he showed a great degree of common sense, of creative intentionality with the nose. And again, I say that partly in jest, but in, in all reality, it really is a beautiful thing how much care God took in forming us and shaping us, and it shows how powerful and intelligent and loving he is to us. 
Then in verses 17 and 18, David again points out the difference between him and God. See, he's dwelling on God here. Throughout this whole thing, David is thinking. He's mulling over, who is this God? Who is this God that I am in relationship with? And he says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So he points out this difference between him and God again. He, he's dwelling on God, and God is far beyond him. He just knows that the thoughts of God are so, so many, they outnumber the grains of the sand. But yet, he notices that these thoughts are still turned to David. So many of these thoughts. He has this many thoughts just about David. He has this many thoughts about each of us. And that is a hard concept to understand. In fact, it's one I don't think we really fully can understand. But this was what David was communicating. That he just was seeing this God that was so beyond him, but yet so concerned for him once again. And all of this is a great comfort to David. He praises God for this. In 14, he says, for God's thought and care, he says, this is fearfully and wonderfully made. He recognizes that about himself, that God is guiding and leading him. We have to keep David's life and world in mind here. So this is pre-birth of Christ, well before the birth of Christ. This is Israel, the Middle East. And it was not the safest place in the world. David's own life shows this. He fought Goliath. Saul was always trying to kill him. It just seemed like, who knew? Any day he was around Saul, it could be the day that would be his last. And then, there's even toward the end or later in his life, David's own kids are attempting to take a swipe at him. And uh, that'd be pretty unsettling when your own children are starting to want to not only rebel a little bit, but take you out. Uh, I think David's life was pretty, uh, pretty tumultuous at times. And so he's unsure about his enemies. He's unsure about the danger around him. And this brings comfort to him that God knows him, that God is with him, and that God created him. He created everything. So David is comforted by all of these things so far. And he knows that God has, is so powerful in all these respects. So now we'll see how these reflections on God, he's thought long and, and hard about God. We'll see how these reflections affect David's life on a, on a more day-to-day basis or a foundational level, how he responds to this. So we turn to verse 19. Let's look at these verses, uh, and they communicate this. Our best response to God, or in light of who God is, is honesty and trust in God. Our best response in light of who God is, is honesty and trust in God. So let's look at these verses that are communicating this. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So again, I just made the statement that this is is communicating that our best response, David's response, is honesty and trust in God. Does this seem to communicate trust and honesty in God? It seems like he's using this this language. If only you would slay the wicked. I didn't really see that transition coming. You know, I hate those. I make them my enemies as well. So what just happened? Well, it's a bit unclear. It's unclear if David is citing a specific situation here. Some have suggested he is anxious about certain people who have threatened his life or accused him of wrongdoing which results in his appeal to this divine judge. Again, the one who's qualified to arbitrate between all things. He's appealing to this divine judge to pronounce his innocence, as mentioned earlier. Others 
believe that this probably is not an actual situation where David's fearing for his life or really wanting to profess his innocence, but saying that this is something where it's probably a situation representative of David's sentiments for those who oppose God. So just his sentiments, his attitudes toward that. Still others offer this point. They say that hate here is really just communicating this distance that David wants to place between himself and those that are enemies of God. He's saying, God, I want to be associated with you. I don't want to be associated with them. I want to place myself under you. This, this hatred uh, refers to this distance he wants to place himself in. So why are these verses here? Short answer is, I don't know. I don't know exactly why they're here. I don't know that I, I think I'd have to think more and, uh, and really do some further looking. But, but I think this is what we want to focus on. It's true that there are vast differences in the way we see the world and the way the ancients saw the world. But for our purposes this morning, so we aren't left hanging, I want to make just a few observations about this that I think we can walk away with. Uh, So number one is this. This is a prayer to God. It's continuing David's prayer to God. And this is an honest prayer to God. You see, it acknowledges and applies the truth that God alone is the one equipped to fully know and judge David or his enemies, to judge us or those that we don't particularly get along with. You see, sometimes we don't think that we can be honest with God, but God is the one to be completely honest with. He's really the only one. God is big enough. He can handle your emotions no matter what they are. He wants to share in your joy. He wants to comfort you in your grief. God can handle your hatred. In fact, he would rather that be expressed with him than with others. So God can handle your emotions. He is big enough. This is the God that created you. He's the God that created everything. So number one, this is an honest prayer. Number two, it is a personal prayer. You see, God knows you. He formed you. He is with you as he was with David. And he's already personally invested and involved in your life. So you can be honest and you can be personal with him. You can share things that you don't just want to go broadcasting to anyone and everyone. It is an honest and personal prayer. And then number three, that the thrust of this is really in in David placing trust in God more than in demonstrating or dealing with hate or, or troubles with others. So he starts out and he says, if only you would slay the wicked. He's just saying, God, I give it to you. He's king after all. He could go and wage war. He could take care of some some of his own things. David can work out some of his own problems potentially. But he says, God, if you would do this, it seems as though these people are against you. I don't want to be on their side. I want to be on yours. So please take care of it. God is the one who should and can do that. He's the one qualified and equipped to respond to his opponents and David's opponents and our opponents. So finally, Finally, we arrive at the end, the last two verses. And these are probably the most well-known, at least I think they're the most prayed verses from Psalm uh, 139. They're the most echoed. It's been by Christians. It's been by followers of God for millennia, I think, that have probably sung and prayed these verses. And here they are. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Okay, so again, this is an odd transition. 
It's, but it's fitting to this psalm. So it's odd in the sense that for the previous 22 verses, David has been declaring to God, about God, and to the people of God that God knows everything, that God is present everywhere, that God knows us to the degree that he shaped us and forms us. So why here does David then say to search me, to know me, to test me, to see if there's any offensive way in me? Again, is David simply trying to assert his innocence in this uh, yet-to-be-identified conflict? Uh, What's going on here? What I would say is that David trusts this God fully and completely. He's giving the best response. He's placing his trust in him. Whatever the circumstance, God wants to submit to this God. He wants to be evaluated by this God. He wants to be protected and led by this God. And this will result in him and us living fully and rightly by trusting in God. It will lead to the way everlasting, the way of life, as opposed to the way that leads to death, which is a common theme in the Old Testament. There's a way that leads to life, and there's a way that leads to death. So even when God found David guilty, which if you know David's story, he found him guilty of, oh yeah, adultery and murder. I mean, these are not small things by human standards. These are large failings on the part of David. And even when God finds David guilty, and he responds in a way that is as much pastoral care and love and concern for David as it is punishment for him. God loves David. He knows David. He is invested in David's life. We are always measuring ourselves today against various standards. Today, for instance, people would like to think that they don't, but they do unknowingly oftentimes. Take a mirror. I don't know what percentage of this room looks in a mirror every or most mornings before leaving the house, but I do. I wake up, there's one as I'm brushing my teeth. You know, there's one as I'm washing my hands before I leave. The mirror is there, and we look at it. And when we look at it, we ask ourselves things. Where am I going today? Am I dressed appropriately for the occasion? Is this business casual? Could I pretend it's business casual? Can I get by with my slippers and pajamas when I go to the store? Just, I just need eggs and milk. That's it. I think this is appropriate. Does this make my teeth look big? Just representative of some of the really odd questions you might ask when looking in the mirror before leaving. Or one might say, no, not me. I'm not a mirror looker. I don't want to give in to that societal pressure. And even those will inevitably evaluate themselves later against a fellow non-mirror looker. They drive a what? They make how much? She is just the best mother. We cannot actually learn much about ourselves from this. It's kind of an empty exercise. We don't really know exactly how we should live. We only see what we see. And we often don't even see it fully, accurately, or correctly. We may think we look great, and we may think we look horrible, and that may or may not be true. It's beside the point. But we almost never know fully or feel confident about how to proceed. We just don't. It's it's an imprecise standard. It's always moving. It's always a, a moving target. It's hard to hit. The psalmist recognized this reality. And he and I would submit to you today that it is only by knowing who God is, by thinking about God, that you and I can truly know ourselves. Because only God knows us accurate and completely. 
Only he is this divine judge. Only he is qualified to arbitrate amongst all things human or otherwise. So we need to take a play out of the Old Testament playbook and derive our identity from that of our God and his relationship with us. God is with you always. He made you. You are not God. We're not God. So we must look to God for identity, for purpose, for mercy, forgiveness, justice, guidance, and direction. We must look to him for everything in our lives. So God knows all of us inside and out, and he alone is worthy of our trust. God knows all of us inside and out, and he alone is worthy of our trust. Now, I don't want to beat a horse past the point. Actually, I don't really want to beat a horse at all. It's beside the point. So today, we've been through a lot of verses. We've been through a long psalm. I've said a lot of words. And you may be sitting there thinking, what is it exactly that we're walking out of this place knowing and maybe doing? It's just two things. I want to leave us with these two things. So number one is we would do well to dwell on God more. We would do well to dwell on God more. Now this is easy to say and hard to do. And even as I was writing this sermon, I was a bit hesitant because this psalm is so rich. It's so deep. We've pulled out some highlights, just bits and pieces that contribute to what I believe God wanted to say to us this morning. But you could read this psalm a hundred times, hear a dozen sermons on it, pray the last couple of verses or the whole thing your whole life, and still not have plumbed the depths of it. Now, this may sound like hyperbolic language, and to some degree, it is. But at the same time, I've read this psalm quite a bit over the past few weeks. More than once, more than once, and every time a different aspect of it captures me or affects me. It's the same when we think about God more generally. Dwell on God. He's given us this book, his word, which that's only one chapter in it. Dwell on God, and it will have some effect on us and on those around us. So when David did this, he realized that God was both beyond him and with him. The God of the universe wanted to know him, and that God wants to know you. And you find out also that God You cannot be separated from him. He's always with you. You can think of Romans 8 for New Testament, uh, another look at this. Romans 8, God's love is always with you. You can't be separated from God. And then only by knowing God can you truly know yourself. It's hard to understand. It's hard to grasp. We often want to act like we know as much or more than God, but it's only as knowing God that we can truly know ourselves. And then I want to address this. I know We're almost to the end. But the thought that God knows everything about us and the thought that God is always with us can be comforting or it can be terrifying. For David, it was mostly comforting, but I guarantee you at all points in his life, it wasn't comforting. The thought that God knows everything about him and the thought that God was always with him, that's not always a comforting thought. And it certainly wasn't for David and it's certainly not for me. And I would assume that it's not for you. So I just want to address that. I want to say that this can be unsettling for some, but yet it's true for all of us. It's just true. God knows us fully. He's with us always. And it can be comforting. It can be unsettling, but it's true. So no matter what camp we fall in this morning, we would do well to dwell on God more. And then two, we would do well to respond to God by trusting him. We would do well to respond to God by trusting him. We spend so much of our lives with anxiety, worry, and fear, but there's no need. Again, those are easy words to say and hard words to live, but yet it's still true. God knows where we've been, where we're going, and nothing is a surprise to him. 
So dwell on God more and then respond by trusting him. So today it would be appropriate, I think, to conclude by singing together. However, you don't want any part of that with me leading it. So what we're going to do is we're going to conclude by praying together, and then we will go on. So let's pray. God, we've heard from your word today that you are far beyond us, the only one able to examine and evaluate us. Simultaneously, you know us intimately. You're always with us. You created us. So God, today we want to respond by placing our trust in you. We want to echo the words of David. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in us, and God lead us in the way everlasting. Amen.